0: our major guiding question was why are people doing this why spend money for a place to work and it seemed like all of the other reasons they were giving weren't sufficient to really explain why they would spend money to be there so we zeroed in on this sense of community pretty quickly as as what sets co-working apart from alternative workplace options
1: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Coworking Weekly Show. I'm your host, Alex Hellman, and you're listening to episode number 11. And if this is your first time tuning in, this is a show where my guests and I explore the most important aspects of co working, collaboration, and community building, the ones that have helped us and our community succeed the most. And my goal is to show you through real world experiences, how to connect the dots, solve problems, and better understand the communities that we're all involved in every day. And that's why I'm so excited to share this interview. And I've been excited since we scheduled it at the beginning of this year. Now, I first heard about my guests today from a piece that they wrote in Time Magazine back in November titled, Why Coworking is Hot, which as you can imagine kind of made my skin crawl just from the title. But once I actually read it, I discovered that it was easily one of the best mainstream articles about coworking that I've seen maybe in the past year or more. Because rather than focus on the surface level trends like everyone else is talking about, these guys took a much deeper dive into answering the question that you heard in the opening of today's episode. Why would people who can work from anywhere choose to work in a co-working space? So today I'm excited to introduce you to Peter Baseweiss and Lyndon Garrett from the Center for Positive Organizations at the University of Michigan. And in the research these guys did, which is all about why people choose co-working, all of the answers came back to one concept in particular, which is a sense of community. Which of course raises the question, what exactly is a sense of community? And how do you know if it's there or not? What are the elements? And maybe most importantly, and this is what I'm excited to get into today, what are the specific things that you and I can do to help create that sense of community in our co-working spaces, in our neighborhoods, wherever it is that we're working? I'll admit that I geeked out a little bit on the opportunity to talk about psychology and organizational behavior because those are the aspects of co-working communities that I'm personally so fascinated by. And because these guys are real deal trained researchers in the field, they know a lot of things that I know they're able to share with us. And as a result, there's some parts of the interview where the information gets a little bit dense. But the good news is that you don't need to be an academic to understand this stuff. You might hear some terms and concepts you've never heard before, but we'll do our best to explain them. And I promise you that there is so much valuable stuff in this interview that you absolutely do not want to miss out on. I really appreciate Peter and Lyndon for coming on the show, and I really appreciate you for taking some time out of your day to listen and learn from this stuff. So without further ado, let's get on with episode number 11, Discovering What Creates a Sense of Community.
2: In my uh, academic circles, I'm, uh, I am will often introduce myself uh, as a researcher, Uh with the University of Michigan um who's interested in uh um essentially how people thrive at work. Um so essentially a workplace researcher, but that's actually not my day job. My day job is that I work I'm actually based in New York City. Um I work for an architecture firm called HLW and my role there is as a senior design strategist. Um, we work with uh, with a number of clients on basically creating really great workplaces for them. But I'm not trained as a uh, architect. I'm trained as a social scientist. So my background is really more about understanding people, uh, how they work, or, in a, or if we're working with um, with a, um, educational institution, we're also interested in how they learn. So I'm I'm sort of interested in just general human interaction. And then, how can how can the physical and the physical space or the physical environment really help nurture those communities? Whether it's a learning community or a working community, that's what I do. So, so I really approach my work from a lot of different angles. I mean, one from the practitioner side, because um, I do you know work very hands-on with a number of really interesting organizations. At the same time, I'm really, I'm, I am very much um, a researcher at heart. Um, I uh, moved up through the um, academic world. I finished a PhD uh, in education, and I just have this natural curiosity. So I'm always trying to mix. So I'm always trying to connect the two worlds: my my professional practice and my academic research. And I really get to learn. You know, one always influences the other. And I have a lot of fun with that.
1: I'm wondering, so your, your background and your personal interest. it sounds like your, your real passion is for those human interactions. And it it just so happened to be applying it to the workplace. Now, had you done other applied work, uh, other than sort of outside of the the workplace design field as well?
2: Well, so I really fell into this by accident. Um, when I was a doctoral student at Michigan, I worked with a team of uh, professors in in the business school, uh, and they were building an innovation institute um, near the campus. It was essentially being designed as a as a sort of focal point for for a lot of disparate communities around the campus. University of Michigan is a very big, decentralized university. with A lot of really cool things going on, but very siloed. People don't really talk to each other that much, so professor that I worked with was, you know, very much interested in uh jumps starting innovation around the campus. And his vision was to basically create this, this innovation center. It was sort of like a, a neutral ground on the campus where people could learn from each other and, and get to know each other. And we had a partner in within the furniture design um, or, or the office furniture industry, one of the major furniture companies, um, worked with us to design the place and they were very interested in sort of the link between how you design a space and the culture that it's being designed for. So it was sort of this, you know, this notion that space reinforces and is reinforced by culture. So I had never really been exposed to that kind of thinking, but I always just sort of had a very passive interest in architecture and design. So I got to work with a lot of really cool design minded people and I also then had a friend who was in the architecture school. We kind of got talking back and forth, and I realized he was interested in education. And I was interested in, in architecture. So we had a lot of really great conversations. But it was through those various connections that I got introduced to the architecture profession and then ended up moving out to, to, to New York um, to actually work professionally doing the type of
1: work that I mentioned earlier. It looks like we've, uh, we've actually been joined by, uh, one of your research partners. Yep. That's awesome. Lyndon, welcome. Thank you. Glad you're able to, uh, to join us today. Um, this would be something new for the show, actually having a a second guest join midway through. (laughs) I love, love that. And we can roll with it. Welcome. Uh, we were just sort of, uh, getting a little bit of background, uh, from Peter and sort of how he, uh, how he introduces himself, how, Uh, He describes what he does and how he came to do it. I'd love to get something similar from you.
0: I think right now the the thing that's sort of most salient in my identity and how I describe myself is is being a a PhD student. I study business management, but uh, more specifically interpersonal relationships. Uh, But I'm also a husband, father of a three-month-old little girl and so that's, that's pretty exciting. That so is exciting. Is the thing I, I tend to bring up now when I introduce myself.
1: <laughs> Very cool. How did how did the two of you actually meet?
0: Uh, when I started my program here at the University of Michigan, my first year, my advisor was Gretchen Spreitzer, a faculty in the management program. And uh, Pete had actually reached out to Gretchen, interested in. Uh, some of her research on thriving. And Pete's the one that came to us with, with experience in co-working and new forms of work and wanting to explore how those influenced workers' experience of thriving, which is Gretchen's specialty. And me being connected with Gretchen, she she presented it as a possible research opportunity for us. And um, along with a few other Potential research opportunities, and I, I picked this one as the one that stood out to me as, as the most interesting and having the most potential.
1: This word thriving. Now you've both used in sort of your your introductions of of an interest that brought you together. And I, I don't know if there's a particular you know definition or description that that Gretchen uses or that you use. Uh, I'm super interested in what thriving. Actually means, I think people think about, um, you know, productivity and creativity and collaboration. Uh, but I also noticed that it's a lot of sort of like negative points to zero range. Um, it's sort of like recovering losses and thriving is more on sort of the zero to positive range. So this is a more additive, uh, kind of environment where people are actually doing something that they couldn't, that they couldn't or weren't otherwise doing. Um, but that's just my take. I'm curious sort of what thriving actually means to you guys.
2: Um, sure. So I'll, I'll, I'll uh, uh, jump in there. It's interesting that you make the point about sort of um, going from the, from sort of a baseline point going forward, going positive, which is actually how we define the whole field of positive organizational scholarship, which is, sort of really, what this whole uh, research project lies under is this whole notion of positive organizing, which if you the basic premise is that a lot of uh, organizational change or a lot of um, um, a lot of initiatives to try to you know improve our organizations is about starting with a, with a system that is compromised or broken. And oftentimes trying to just kind of nurture it along to the point where it's kind of performing at a very uh, mean or average level of performance. And so in in the whole language of positive organizations, we talk about positive deviance, which is essentially you're deviating from from the mean or the average level of performance, and you're trying to excel. You're trying to go beyond it. So you're trying to start with – start with the – baseline and really go beyond. So thriving is really part of that, that language. It's really about, um, you know, how you see yourself, um, improving, learning as a person, growing, um, feeling energized. And so really from a very practical perspective, it's, it's how you see people doing their best work and really learning and enjoying learning from it, enjoying it.
1: Awesome. So it's, it's, I mean, it's really a layer on top of that pre, pro, uh, productivity and creativity that, that I think people think of when they think of co-working. Um, and even when they think of work in general, uh, the difference between your work and your best work. Uh, and I, and I, I wonder how many people, uh, actually think about that distinction. I, I really love the way you, you frame that. Um, I think it's something, for, for folks who are, who are listening to be thinking about, you know, when you think about what is your best work, what does it look like? What does it feel like when you're doing your best work? Uh, and what are the elements of the environment that make that possible and contribute to that? Uh, you know, is that other people? Is that certain things in the environment? That's, that's super interesting. So, um, I would love to get into the actual research work that you guys did together. And yeah.
2: so maybe I'll just walk you through how, like, the whole, Progression of how the 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 um, the various uh, research activities evolved, and then maybe I'll have Lyndon talk specifically about this uh, this paper in particular. That sounds wonderful. Um, so we you know we kind of approach this. We had some very broad questions about you know how people th- um, essentially how do people thrive in co working spaces. Um, also some very general questions about community and how communities evolve in, in co-working. Um, so we, it, it, this was a sort of inductive research approach where, you know, we didn't really go in with any preconceived notions about what we were looking to get out of it. Um, you know, co-working to a lot of us is a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, it's only, <clears throat> um, I mean, it's only been around for, you know, uh, not quite, 10 years. So we know it's a relatively new way of working. And, um, you know, from a research perspective, we know that there hadn't really been anything, <clears throat> um, any any research done on the topic. So we we're essentially going in with a very clean slate to try to figure out, you know, how can we learn as much about it as possible? So we had some ideas about launching a survey and asking some very um, broad questions, some very broad Questions around a number of different constructs. So that's what the uh, the survey focused on. So it focused on a number of sort of emotional uh, and uh, uh, community oriented uh, variables that we would look at in doing organizational research. We also wanted to do sort of a deeper dive into the into the uh, phenomenon. Um, so in Ann Arbor, there's a, uh, there is a local co-working community, um, uh, which I had actually visited a few times back when I was a student, but I, um, um, I left Ann Arbor about, uh, four years ago, but, um, Lyndon and Gretchen got to know the team, um, over there. And, uh, so in the course of our project, we designed, um, a, Study where uh, Lyndon would essentially immerse himself in the community to learn more about the sort of the the, um, the process of how community evolves, and so there was that piece of it. Then we also had some other activities going on, on the side where we had um, uh, a team of of assistants working on. Uh, Going through a number of coworking space websites, uh, I think we ended up looking at close to 200 of them, and we basically we basically coded them, which means we we categorize them based on a number of different uh, features in terms of how they market themselves, what kinds of amenities they um, they talk about, what what words they use to describe themselves. So we so we captured a lot of data about these. Bases themselves. So we had data coming from the survey, we had data coming from this this website analysis, and we had the sort of the really interesting uh, process um, uh, process learnings coming from Lyndon's time spent at the local co-working community. So maybe I'll turn it over to Lyndon where he could talk a little bit more about that whole experience.
0: Sure. So, When we began spending time at this co-working space in Ann Arbor, our major guiding question was, why are people doing this? Why spend money for a place to work? And, you know, through observing people and and observing what they got out of the space and, and how they used the space and also interviewing members there, the answers, they ranged quite a bit, but, uh, the most frequently recurring theme was this, this community that it provided. So people would often say, hey, I work here because it's pretty cheap and because there's a sense of community, or because it's close or it's convenient and there's the sense of community. Um, and it seemed like all of the other reasons they were giving, the more pragmatic reasons for co working, uh, weren't sufficient to really explain why they would spend money to be there because. You know, convenience was really the reason. It seems like it, it'd be more convenient to work from home. You know, our proximity, you know, that's not a good enough reason. Um, is because it's close by. Because, again, home is, is often uh, an even closer alternative. Uh, or uh, working out of a coffee shop. If all you need is to be around people, then why not just, you know, work at a coffee shop? Uh, so so we zeroed in on this sense of community pretty quickly as, as what sets co-working apart from alternative workplace options. Um, and so we went and looked in, in research, existing research in sociology and community psychology on what we already know about the sense of community and what that entails and how it emerges. And there's actually very little research on how people come to experience a sense of community, where that comes from. And so we ended up using co-working as sort of an ideal context where we can study how a sense of community emerges. And it's ideal for a few reasons, um, but mainly because there's really no other social structure that's holding these groups of people together, meaning that their relationships are not a function of being part of a common work organization or having roles that that bring them to work together. The glue that's really holding these people together is is more the psychological experience of community um, along with a physical space. And so our research in that revealed a few things. One, there were different ways that a sense of community emerged. So we found that for even for brand new members, you know, when they first came and visited the space, a sense of community already began emerging for them based simply on a shared desire or vision of community. So as they'd show up looking for a community or wanting community, and they'd see glimpses of that in the space that would sort of ignite in them a possibility of, you know, wow, this could be a community for me. And that alone, that shared desire and observed potential sort of created this this sense of belonging like this is this is a community for me um and then that sense of community was further refined as as they would, would spend time in the space and observe uh the norms around community and as they would eventually become involved or engaged in the community themselves um, not everybody would become actively engaged in the community, but they could still feel that sense of community based simply on observing it around them and and realizing this potential to be part of a community if if they so desired. Um, And we also found that the reason co-working seems to do so well at creating a sense of community is ironically because of the lack of structure because people have so much autonomy and independence, it allows their relationships to form organically and to form in a more authentic way than in a typical work organization where relationships are more structured and role-based and you don't have as much autonomy around who you sit next to or who you talk to on a day-to-day basis, those relationships often become less art or less authentic, more artificial. Whereas in coworking, you see these authentic forms of community emerge autonomously as as people sort of take on the, the type of engagement that they desire.
1: The, the sort of range of participation that you talk about, um, you know, from, a, from something that's simply internal and desire based through a few stages into something that is more active and participatory. Um, it's actually one of the things that Adam and I teach in our workshops is for people to think about the participation of their members. Well, participation is a, a critical value in creating not just the value for the member, but as you said, for the value for the other members, I think people look at participation as a binary thing on or off you are, or you aren't. Uh, and so it's really, it's, it's amazing to me and really valuable to hear that you were able to see some of those distinct, uh, sort of activities along that range and sort of where people's, I mean, did you notice that people's sort of emotions actually changed at different stages along that range? So
0: the way they would often describe it was, feeling a sense of ownership that would emerge the more involved and the more engaged they became, uh, a sense of investment in the space. Um, I think a sense of closeness too with, with other members. But again, that, that happened, it, it was sort of funny. And one of the surprises in our data was that even people who weren't really interacting much in the space, they still felt the sense of closeness they felt a, a part of a community simply by observing other people interacting and observing other people sort of sharing challenges they were facing and and um, and helping you know provide support for each other. They felt like they were a part of it. Um, but the more they they began doing that themselves, uh, yeah, a sense of a sense of ownership really emerged.
1: I have one little piece of, uh, of anecdata that I love to share related to that. And for the folks who wonder about, um, sort of co-working and, uh, sort of introversion versus extroversion, if you will, uh, a common question that comes up for me in Q and A sessions is, you know, but what about introverts? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think that the, you know, these places are, are, like you said, due to their lack of structure in so many ways can be ideal for someone who's an introvert to come in and find the spot along that spectrum for them and um my my uh my buddy Tony Bachaglupo runs New Work City in Manhattan and early on in New Work City's history um Tony uh, has has a story from having a member who would sort of fall into that pattern that I think people often see as potentially a problem pattern where somebody comes in, uh, they sit down, they open their laptop, they put in their headphones, they work all day, they don't really talk to anybody, they don't really interact with anybody, uh, and then they go home at the end of the day. And for for a lot of us that are habitual observers of these things, we see that as someone who there's a good chance that they're not going to be around for very long, uh, and maybe there's something we can do to help them get involved, or they just don't see a thing that's of interest to them yet. And in Tony's example, he went ahead and, and approached that member and said, "Hey, I was just wondering how things are are going for you and how how New York City is for you." And the guy replied, he said, "You know, this is this is great. This has been the best thing for me. And I I absolutely love being here. I love being around these people." And Tony was sort of taken aback because <laughs> he never saw the guy interact with anybody. And the guy said, "You know, I'm kind of introverted." And Knowing that there's a place where I can go and be surrounded by people and like you said, observe them interacting with each other and ha- listen to them. I I overhear conversations all day long and I love hearing other people in conversation. It inspires me. It keeps me mo- motivated. And it's, it's that from an observation perspective. Um, I think it's so. Interesting to think about co-working spaces on those different levels, and to have your your research really back that up makes it makes me feel good. <laughs> um, but it's 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 really cool to see that that's a that's an actual effect, and it's something to that to that end that can be very intentionally designed.
2: There's an interesting um, concept, and you hear it sometimes in the in research around um, uh, uh, either planning or or space design, but it's the concept of place attachment. And it's almost, I think what you're mentioning there or what you're describing is someone feeling a sense of place attachment. And what that is, there's actually a really interesting parallel or metaphor I like to use if you've ever, if you've ever visited New York City, you know, you're sort of, you know, for the first time you're sort of inspired by all these different things here, all, you know, the museums, the parks, you know, all these amenities. And then you talk to someone who's lived here a long time and you ask them, when was the last time you've ever visit, visited the Metropolitan Museum of Art? And I said, well, probably maybe five, ten years ago. And you and you might say to them, well, gee, you know, it's right there. Why would you never, you know, why wouldn't you take advantage of it more often? And and a response you'll often hear is, yeah, but it's nice. It, it's nice to know that it's there when I want it
1: to be there. <laughs> and
2: the whole concept of place attachment is this notion of both. It's been it, this is not. This is from what other researchers have said, but place attachment gives you both a sense of refuge and um, prospect. So this idea that, you know, you kind of have the safe, the sort of safe place, this, this, the sense of home or the sense of, um, you know, permanence associated with the, with a place, but also the idea of there being things that you can explore, things that you, you know, new possibilities. So this refuge and, and prospect, you can imagine it happening in a big city. So this is why people get very attached to, you know, to their hometowns, but it can also explain why people get attached to a, a community, you know, any kind of workplace, you know, even if you're not engaging with people on a day to day basis, the fact that, that there's that the same people are there gives you that comfort. And it gives you that sense of, Hey, you know, when I need to talk to some I'll feel safe approaching people in this community. So it's, so even for that introvert, you know, we, I, I think in our, in doing this research and, and thinking about, you know, different levels of, of community, it's almost like this latent sense of community. The possibility of it is just as important as, you know, to some people as, you know, being involved in a day to day.
1: But that possibility, uh, do you think it needs to be actually visible and experienceable, not just something that, you know, I think a lot of people say, well, the, you know, our co-working space is going to be blah, 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 community. And people, you know, I think they imagine the possibility in their head, but then when they go to open the co-working space and they go, we're open, it's sort of, it's sort of crickets. Mm-hmm. Um, i it, do you think or do you know if there is research that actually backs up the fact that people need to be able to see the community in action in order to see and feel that possibility
0: yeah and that's that's what's tricky is you know, you mentioned Tony going approaching this introvert, you know presumably to encourage this person to be more involved um because you do need that or or else you know this the sense of community will go away we We described it as. Um, that there needs to be these instances or, or flashes of, of community, uh, at least every now and then to keep the possibility alive, um, to keep reminding people of, of the potential and reinforcing that potential. However, um, if you start sort of forcing people to, to be more engaged, to, to be actively involved, it loses that authenticity. And so, yes, you need at least a handful of people who are sort of enacting the community, making it observable and visible to all the rest of the people who are simply satisfied by this potential. Um, And and so you need, yes, you're right. You need at least a certain amount of that, but it can't be forced or else that won't work either.
1: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, So while you were sort of embedded in your co-working experience, what kinds of observable Um, flashes of community as you describe them, what kinds of things do you actually see that other people, even if they're not actually interacting with, that they can sort of see and contribute to the sense of community?
0: I think a big one that that a few people mentioned was actually the email listserv, which was was quite active. You know, there were emails being exchanged almost daily uh, on this listserv. And so people would often pose these questions or challenges and then get support or get help. And you know, what these observers are doing is, is they're constantly seeing this back and forth of, oh, look, that person needed help and he got help. And you know, even though they had no part of that interaction, they see it happening all, all the time. And so they know that, you know, if I'm ever in a position where I need help, I can jump on and send an email and I know it will be responded. And so I think that's that was one of the sort of instances of community more on a day-to-day basis. Um, but also, the, they, they would have social events. They would have, you know, people would sort of spontaneously say, hey, let's go out and grab lunch. You know, the workday would just spontaneously be disrupted by somebody sharing some moment of good news in their personal lives and, and people offering congratulations on that. So it was all sorts of things and it was quite frequent, but um, that was you know, to break up an otherwise uh, often quiet day of work, you know, while there might be instances of sort of social interaction every day uh, in between those instances, there might be two or three hours of just silent, you know, work time where people are just being productive. So, so by flashes of community we didn't mean that it was like a once a week or or that sporadically, but it was really throughout the day, keeping keeping that sense of community alive.
1: And it's neat to see sort of you describing Different intervals, uh, sort of different scales of, of intensity. And I think those two variables sort of calibrating against each other, but also different places. Uh, the online community, we, I have the same experience with Indie Hall. Our online community is as much of a vibrant place to be as the co-working space itself. And I'm amazed at how many co-working spaces don't have some sort of online compliment uh if they if i ask do they have an online community they say yeah i've got you know a place where we we blast out announcements but it's really really just me if if they're honest versus the the participation and contribution largely being led by members uh you know if i I look at uh the so the tool that we use for our own discussion list is is uh because we've uh found all the things you just described to be so so valuable and realize that at a certain scale, at a certain volume level, um, there, there's a, a barrier to, to entry in continuing to participate just as an observer. It becomes too noisy. And so emails start getting filtered into labels and things like that. And so we designed something specifically to be considerate of that. But one of the other cool things about that is it lets me watch patterns in, in the back and how people participate. And the difference between how people uh in the communities that use group buzz use it. And almost anything else that I've been a part of is the ratio of participation that is led by non leading members. Mm-hmm. And so it's what I mean by that is sort of like the people that are responsible for the forum are not the people who are initiating most of the conversation. I think that's a really an important and valuable part and, and, I am wondering if in, in your observations as well, sort of where does that leadership come from and what role does that play in in the sense of community that you're describing in these different sort of flashes of, of community experience?
0: It's a good question. Leadership, so at the time I was observing, I was part of this, the community. They were going through a bit of a transition as um, there were four so-called maintainers, that's what they called themselves. Um, who were original founders of, of the co-working space. Um, but three out of the four, at the time I was joining, they were going through job transitions that meant they weren't actually able to spend much time in the space. And so they were they, they were at the time handing off that leadership role uh, to other members. But I mean, I use the word leadership sort of loosely because they don't describe what they do as, as leading at all, but more as maintaining, which for them meant just providing opportunities, providing a framework uh, for people to kind of come in and, and make of it what they want. And also, you know, there were certain roles that needed to be accomplished you know, the space needed to be cleaned periodically, uh, people replenishing the snack table or refilling the
1: kegerator when it needed to be filled. Life critical elements of a co-working space. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and,
0: and and planning social activities. And so the maintainers, they wouldn't do those things themselves, but they would they would try to to make known what needed to be done and let other members jump in to say, yeah, I'll take care of that or I'll take that that role, that responsibility.
1: That's a big distinction that I, I, I've made in, and actually in, in the first few episodes of this podcast with uh, Adam, who really sort of leads the team that, as I, I describe, as you did, makes sure that Indie Hall is moving, is evolving, people feel, can feel comfortable giving tours, all of those things. But a huge part, a disproportionately huge part of his role is actually inviting the participation. Uh, of members in a lot of the things that he does. And that includes things like giving tours. That includes things like cleaning and restocking and all of those sorts of things. So lots of little subtle things, uh, that can, that can lead to participation. And like we were talking about before, those visible elements of participation are sort of a, there's a cascade effect. And because they're observable, new members can see existing members helping Adam. Therefore, the norm is established that, oh, helping Adam is normal and cool and I can do that too and it's just another layer to that that active sense that this is a place where where we look after each other and we look after the thing. I'm wondering about any sort of some big surprises that you guys found and really in either of the research uh, components that you did that broader survey or the more immersive one. What were some of the big like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that kind of takeaways that you guys had?
2: Well, there were a couple of different Things um, so you, know, you often have this sense, this impression that that coworking spaces are um, you know a bunch of uh, you know a bunch of tech uh, tech entrepreneurs you know sitting away coding you know trying to launch their you know launch a launch a startup or build an app or something like that and it's and we found coworking to be a much more diverse group of people. You know, we certainly uh, close to a third of our of our survey respondents. And we certainly saw this in the community that that Lyndon spent time in because we certainly had members doing this as well. But, you know, a third of the members, a third of the survey respondents were actually people who were employed full time at a, you know, quote unquote, traditional um, organization, but worked remotely. Um, You know, and we saw that is kind of an interesting it was interesting to us. Because you know, we know that people are working in an increasingly flexible way. You know, people can move to a different city. Uh in, in our in our case study, some of the some of the participants that Lyndon interviewed were people that had moved to Ann Arbor because their spouse got a job or or went to grad school. Um, and their job, they they brought their job with them. Um so for us, that actually that actually cr- created more questions than we had answers for, because we really weren't sure, you know, if if they experience the sense of community in the same way that they would um, as other members who don't have this sort of uh, organization, if you will, to lean on, um, but at the same time. You know, if you're working if your full-time presence is in a co-working space and your and your identity you know professionally might be with some other um, organization, that actually raised the question to us you know well which you know what matters more you know the, the the title and the organizational affiliation or is it the people who I'm spending my time with And I actually wish we had an answer for you. Um, I think that's the next chapter of our of our research, or that's one of the next um, streams we want to take a look at, because we know that um, that you know across the sample that people are are thriving. You know, we we the survey asked about a number of different things, and they people scored fairly high on measures of um, thriving and intrinsic motivation. So you know, you have a lot of a lot of very self-motivated people who are deliberately choosing to, you know, pay membership, to work in a pl- to work in a space when there are plenty of free alternatives, including, you know, if you're a, including a, um, an office, if you're employed elsewhere. So, you know, for us, you know, we saw some really good results from the, from the data, but we, but we want to know, you know, is there something, we don't know what causes it. You know, we don't know what causes this intrinsic motivation. Are intrinsically motivated people self-selecting into this way of, of working? Or is there something about the co-working experience that that heightens one's sense of self-motivation? And um, so that's those are some things that we're trying to figure out. Again, the the data looks very promising, but we just, you know, there's the sort of, cause and effect is something
1: we're trying to tease out a bit more. I will. I I hope that you continue in that path so that I can have you back on the show and we can talk about what you find there. Um, <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I've noticed, um, and again, it's not necessarily a direct cause and effect, but a lot of the folks who are... In, the, in that realm of the people that you might least expect to find in a co-working space, a step, if not one of the biggest steps that initiates it, is a personal relationship in the community that, that they then later become a more active part of. So a couple of episodes ago, I had on a member of our community who's a full-time fine artist and a big part of the sort of development of our artist community and artists, although native to collaborative spaces since the beginning of time of artists, are not as connected to the co-working world as I think people know it and think of it. And he's just one of many, many examples where it was a personal relationship. Actually, in that case, it was a family member that said, Hey, you should be here. Like these are people that you should be connected with and sort of that little bit of a push. So I, I, I suspect, and I wonder if your research sort of confirms or adds to this or develops in a different direction that having that sort of bridging relationship, uh, -hmm. I think plays a a large role. Uh, and it's something that I think about, like, how do you spot those bridging relationships that already exist or how do you develop bridging relationships to connect otherwise seemingly disparate individuals and seemingly disparate communities?
2: It's interesting that you mentioned artists, um, just, Looking at our at our data, when we um, looked at various websites, uh, various co-working communities, you know, artists were one of the categories that we found that a number of of spaces essentially reached out to, or that was one of their that was one of the descriptive words. Um, but look, it's interesting. The ones that the, the um, there was actually the strongest um, sort of cross tab was was the connection between artists and collaboration and hmm. um i it was interesting what you were saying because um about about their you know a need for there to be a bridge you know collaboration is one of the you know i think one of the hallmarks of of the co-working experience yet how many times do we hear that word cl- collaboration used, you know, we don't always know what it means. Um, you know, maybe it is helping someone, you know, make that connection, you know, build that bridge. And maybe it's the it's the notion of, you know, you know, some implicit understanding of the needs of those of artists or uh, or of other groups. I mean, what was interesting just looking at all these different words that the co-working sites use is that, you know, they're very much are you know, niches that each that each co-working community tries to attract. You know, there's no one size fits all co-working space. There's so many different uh variations of it that we found. And you know, I think I think that's the beauty of 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 the whole phenomenon, is that you can find that fit. And if the fit doesn't work, you can, you know what, there's lots of other co-working communities you can find it. Which is, which is why, in the end, you come back to these communities being such a – there's such an authentic sense of, of community because everyone has self-selected in, and they fit. If they don't fit, then they can leave. And I think that's probably one of the – for us, one of the, the most interesting things that we found from this research
1: that um that self selection is is a uh, and it's a two it's a two way street uh, I think people spend a lot of time thinking about how do I get people to self select in you know how do I get new members uh, and they don't spend as much time thinking about well wh- why do people leave when they leave where is there a disconnect um, and that self selection being really a two way process that that ties really into everything that we 've talked about today uh, is something that I think a lot of people really need to be looking more more closely at, including why when people are no longer connected, feeling connected to the space, feeling like they're getting value out of the space, did they previously feel it was, they were getting value and no no longer? What's the differential? Lots of lots of opportunity for for understanding in there. As we we wrap up our hour together, I'm just curious. You mentioned sort of a a, a bit of indication of where you might be headed next with your research. Any other thoughts on sort of where where your research is going, maybe where people can follow more of your work as you continue to? Because I think you guys are doing some of the most interesting – research in the in the realm Um, i feel a lot of work from from grad students and uh and it's a lot of rehash work this is some truly uh inspiring stuff some truly valuable stuff and i I really want people to be able to to follow along and see what you guys are up to next
2: sure well i'll I'll begin then Uh, Lyndon probably has some ideas as well um just to reiterate um i think there's really something to the the angle of of the members who are employed full time, so like remote workers, and trying to tease out a little bit more about how they how they um, identify or how they construct an identity in their work when they're physically situated in one place, but they might be tied to an organization elsewhere. I mean, there's a couple of ways you could sort of pivot that. We could look at um, those those individuals. And compare them to people in their own uh, organization. So, what you're controlling for there are, would be the same the same organization, but you would be looking at the, at the different ways of working. So, those who are working remotely in a co-working space versus those who work in the traditional setting. The other way you could pivot that is to um, is to just focus on those working in the co-working space. But look at the differences more closely between those who have a, a full-time employer, therefore having a full-time organizational identity and those who I identify in some other way maybe it's through a profession maybe it, so maybe it's you know it, it's it's their um, it's their occupational identity maybe they you know they see themselves as a, um, as, as, a uh, as an entrepreneur or they' they're a um, they're an IT uh Professional or a lawyer or something like that. Or maybe it's that they identify with the community itself. There's a couple of different ways we could approach that. But I think, again, just given that we have a third of members, uh, or, you know, a, a third of our sample, um, kind of falling into that remote work category and knowing what we know about general workplace trends, I think that's a, that's an interesting comparison that we could make. But I know Lyndon has some other ideas as well.
0: Yeah, I guess two, two quick future directions. I think one would be looking at more downstream effects of experiencing a sense of community. Um, so like interesting dependent variables might be like work productivity and like thriving. What, what brought us in in the first place? You know we we know that people are experiencing a sense of community, but we've not yet been able to sort of rigorously examine whether that community, that sense of community, is contributing or causing increased thriving or increased productivity, increased work engagement, you know, all these outcomes that that businesses care about. Um, you know, if if, if we're going to encourage organizations to to allow their employees to, to work in co-working spaces. We, we need to, to somehow link co-working to these, these valued outcomes. And then another is to see whether elements of co-working are, are translatable to work organizations. Can we pull this off? You know, Given that one of the major elements that we found in fostering a sense of community is autonomy and lack of structure, can this actually be accomplished within a structured organization where people have roles and they have hierarchy? Um, you know, can you still provide sufficient autonomy to allow a sense of community to emerge in organizations where typically community isn't part of you know, the work experience in, in an organization? We don't go to work seeking a sense of community, but maybe, maybe that could change.
1: Yeah, uh, that's a, that's a big one for, for me. I mean, both of those realms are, are very interesting, but I've been thinking about it in, in, may, maybe not so much in terms of translation of these sort of techniques and ideas, but, uh, but in the same, to the same token, what can more traditional organizations learn from the style of work? Uh, and for, for a little over two years, I've been putting a, a large portion of my energy into connecting with and working with organizations ranging from for-profits to nonprofits, governments. Governments are a really really interesting realm to be benefiting from these kinds of interactions because I think when you think when you think civic, you should be thinking community, but the organization <laughs> that is in charge of all of these civic instruments tends to be one of the least, uh, least, least congruent with the elements that make a sense of community possible. Uh, we've seen some really interesting shifts. We're just right here in my own backyard in Philadelphia through being able to build some, uh, some really great relationships with leaders here, but, it, but in cities around the world as well. And it's cool to see this stuff be, uh, be increasingly portable to solve Back to, to where this conversation started with you and I, Peter, uh, about really human relationships are in every bit of work that we do. So th- again, I think the, the research that you guys are doing, the foundation that you're building here is, is going to be useful and continue to grow in its utility for a long time. So I want to thank you again for, for taking some time out of your schedules to, to jump on a call with me, to share with the, with the listeners of, of the Coworking Weekly show, where can people follow you guys, uh, websites, Twitter, email, how can people find you guys? So,
2: uh, you can follow up my Twitter account, uh, at, Vice. We also have, uh, through the University of Michigan, we have a website for um, for the Center for Positive Organizations, which is um, positiveorgs.biz.umich.edu, uh, or if you just Google Center for Positive Organizations, you'll find a lot of really interesting resources about uh, other research topics in this area, uh, including links to, to, uh, to ourselves and, you know, the other members of this, of, uh, of this team.
1: Great. And, and Lyndon?
0: Yeah, same. I don't, ac- academics historically are not very good at, at making their work available or accessible <laughs> to like a broader audience. We usually only read each other's <laughs> work. Um, I've heard
1: this before. <laughs>
0: Uh so yeah I mean aside from reading our articles in an academic journal um as as Pete said going to the Center for Progressive Organizations website and you can find our our profiles there which would include you know, our our CVs and links to to papers that we're working on and I think that's probably the best way
1: Wonderful so, Peter, Lyndon, again, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, looking forward to more things from you guys, and we'll chat again in the future. Thank you, Alex. Great. All right, take care, guys. All uh, right, you too. I put a whole bunch of stuff in the show notes from Lyndon and Peter, everything about the Center for Positive Organizations, their articles, their papers, a lot of their references, tons of really good stuff in the show notes today, so don't forget to check that out. I would love to know what you thought about that episode. Did you learn something new that you're going to be able to use? I'd love it if you told me what you learned. So you can either email me, alex at indiehall.org, or tweet at me at alexhillman. And finally, of course, I just want to thank you so much for listening to the show this week, and I will see you next time.